Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes, as usual, for another installment in our Difficult Texts series. And I don't know what feedback you've gotten on this, but I've gotten a lot of great feedback on this series, both, hey, that was really good. We agree with you guys. And a lot of really good, hey, have you thought about this? I kind of disagree with you guys. And when we started talking about doing this series, that was the feedback I was hoping to get. What do you think? Right. Oh, I completely agree. You know, we don't, if you're talking about issues that are not, you know, salvation specific, the non-negotiables of the Christian faith, people can earnestly have different points of view as they try to understand the scriptures. I think one of the things that I'm interested in doing is really making people aware of the different orthodox viewpoints on something and how might you go about thinking about it? How might you go about investigating it? So I love uh, the feedback that we're getting on this both ways. Yeah, and I hope it is a stretching kind of series for people, not to shake your faith necessarily, but to force you to really grapple with what these texts mean. Because certainly on some of these topics, whether it's eschatology or uh, some of the interpretations of these familiar stories, many of us probably have opinions about the text that we've never investigated. We just heard it preached that way, or we'd always kind of been taught that that's the case. And so my goal has been that people would start to investigate, and by doing so, you might arrive back at the same conclusion, but you'll have a much sure. richer appreciation for the surrounding text, the ability to interpret Scripture with Scripture, which is really what we're trying to do in this series. And so uh, right. I'm perfectly comfortable with differing opinions on uh, soul sleep from our last episode or uh, people that really aren't fans of uh Calvinist understanding of election from our Romans 9 episode. I just love to see uh -huh. people really grappling and engaging with the text. And that's, uh, you know, that, that that's something we can get excited about, no matter if we agree or not on some of these non-salvation issues mm -hmm. in the texts. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, just as we get started here, is just thanks for those who have given over the course of this year. We've had a great, great year. We're starting to basically outline our vision and projects for 2023. And uh, it will be our mm -hmm. biggest year by a long shot. Um, and so we're very thankful to right. those who support the ministry with uh, tax-free donations and people that give of time and people who give of their expertise as well to help us. And it's I think as we're recording this, this is Tuesday, and I think this releases Wednesday. It's Giving Tuesday today. So if anybody feels led by having a designated giving day on the calendar, this would be a great day to do it. That's so thanks to everybody point. who supports us. And as you head into the year end, uh, it's a great time to give because we are planning for projects and different people we can bring on and different things we can engage in in 2023 to keep uh, helping you guys think Christianly about the world. So without any uh, further ado, we have one today that I think is experientially a very common question to have about the Gospels. And while right. it's not a particular text, uh, so maybe people aren't thinking about this as a as a troubling text, it is trouble in the text, and that would be what's called the Messianic secret, which appears most pronounced in the Gospel of Mark. Now, you're going to get this in Matthew, and you're going to get it in Luke as well. Um, and then right. there's a whole different thing going on in the Gospel of John that we could maybe call a secret of of one kind or another. But where you see this mostly is when people start a Bible reading plan, and they're going through one of the synoptic gospels, especially Mark, and they'll say something like, 
why does Jesus keep telling people not to tell anyone about what he's doing? You know, I kind of thought the plan was to go right. and tell, you know, uh, right. great commission, go to the ends of the earth, evangelism. Why is Jesus telling people not to tell about his miracles and his mission and the fact that he's the Messiah? This makes absolutely no sense. Um, I've gotten that question a lot from people that are reading the Gospels. What about you? Oh, same. I think when you start, especially if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, you're reading just through the through the New Testament from the beginning to the end, you're going to see that pop up. And here's the reason that it usually shows up in the Gospel of Mark, called the Messianic Secret in the Gospel of Mark, is in Mark three times, Jesus tells demons uh, to be silent and not tell anyone who he is. Four times in Mark, after he's done a miracle, he says, don't tell anybody about this miracle. Two times, he tells the disciples, don't say, you know, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. And two times, he withdraws from crowds to escape detection, sort of, as the Christ. And so if you put add that together, this is a pretty short book, just almost every other page, you're seeing Jesus say, don't tell people who I am. And so I do think it's really natural for people to say, why does Jesus not want anyone to know who he is? Why not proclaim that you are the promised Messiah? Everybody rally around and hear the message and listen to what you have to say. Well, that's a natural question. That's a good question. And in fact, that's something that scholars have also asked that question. And I think you'll find that while there's no horrific disagreement on this, it's not a, a matter of big deal, but it's really interesting to know how have thinkers that have gone before us tried to explain why is Jesus not want anyone to know who he is, at least until the end of his ministry. So what are some uh, thoughts, Cole, from various scholars on how they would answer that question? Well, the first time this is talked about is in a, or at least the first time it's called The Messianic Secret, is in a book in 1901 by William Reed called The Messianic Secret. And I wouldn't hold this up as a great solution. We're not going to include this in our ways that people have viewed this. <laughs> Reed's, Reed's contention, now this yeah. is an era of biblical scholarship where this kind of thing was kind of in vogue, but Reed's contention is that people didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after his resurrection and that Jesus did not claim to be the Messiah, uh, which is strange for a lot of different reasons, but there was a trend in biblical scholarship to push back Jesus' proclamation of his own messiahship. And, you know, people would say things like he never claimed to be God uh, and things like that until he was raised from the dead. And so anyway, that's kind of what he advances, but he's the first one to coin this term, the messianic secret. Yes. And you know what, that idea that Jesus basically, that Jesus didn't think he was God, didn't think he was the Messiah, but later Christians said that he was, made him out to be. I think, I think Bart Ehrman, uh, wrote a book recently, something to the tune of how the church made Jesus God. And so it's that idea that Jesus doesn't want the answer that they might give is Jesus doesn't think he is the Messiah. 
Now, mm-hmm. that's hard to argue for even from the scripture, but they, Jesus didn't think he was the Messiah, and the church later made him into the Son of God and the Messiah. So, again, not a not a very biblical answer, but I think Reed in 1901 put that forth, and you will still see some people claiming that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this still isn't super uncommon. It's very uncommon in evangelical circles, but it isn't super uncommon outside of there, but... Uh, yeah, Bart Ehrman has a book called How Jesus Became God, uh, and then mm. Michael Bird has a response book called How God Became Jesus. So if you want to read on that debate, yeah. um, that that those are two good books to read on that. Um, so I wouldn't consider Reed's uh, approach one that we would consider as, hey, here's how people have looked at this from what well, we would consider an orthodox or uh, biblical, biblically informed perspective. But the first one is not too different than that. There have been people, uh, again, pe- th- this was a trend in criticism and and commentary for a while, who thought that Mark is the one who who originated this messianic secret as an apologetic for Jesus's rejection. So the mindset here would be, this is not something that Jesus actually said, or if it is something he said, it wasn't as prominent. Instead, what Mark is looking at is, why did the Jews especially reject Jesus? Why was he crucified? Right. Why did they not believe? Well, because they didn't know. And so Jesus had been telling people not to say. And so people really weren't sure who he was. And that's one of the reasons that he was uh, rejected. So this would attribute the secret to Mark as kind of an apologetic, almost a way of writing uh, to people who are skeptical about did the disciples just make this up afterwards? Well, no, there was confusion over it because there was this secret, and that's why people didn't know and and rejected him. Uh, Of course, I think the major problem with that view is I don't think that Mark is, the way the gospel is written, uh, is attributing this to himself. I think he's attributing this to Jesus. And uh, the way we read the gospels is that they are reporting on things that actually happened. Now, that's not to deny that each gospel writer doesn't have their own theological lens through which they're seeing this. And they're, they're, they have a certain presentation of the story. They can't pick everything. So they've used certain lenses to try to tell mm-hmm. a story and help you understand the meaning of what Jesus uh, said and did and what his resurrection from the dead means for us. And so that's why you have three different gospel writers in the synoptics. But what we don't typically uh see in the Gospels is the kind of artistic license that would mean you create this whole messianic secret narrative and attribute it to Jesus as a way of shoring up something uh, that happened in in reaction to Jesus. But that's that's a fairly, I wouldn't say fairly common, but you'll see that if you read different commentaries on the book of Mark. The second one, which I think this one's probably the most common view, uh, at least I've encountered it the most, is that from a pragmatic standpoint, it just wasn't time yet for this to be announced. And I would say the strongest text here is in Mark chapter 9. And if you remember our overview of the Gospel of Mark, Mark is divided up into three sections. The first third of the book of Mark, all the way up through about chapter 8, verse 21, is the beginning section. Jesus 
coming into his own. He's beginning his ministry. He's doing all kinds of exorcisms and healings. And then all of a sudden you have a blind person healed at Bethsaida, which is in 822. Mm-hmm. In the middle of that section, which runs through the middle of chapter 10, you have the transfiguration. And Jesus is proclaimed to the three disciples as who he really is, the God-man and the Messiah. And then uh, later in chapter 10, you have the second little bookend here where he heals blind Bartimaeus in verse 40. Mm -hmm. Then starting in chapter 11, verse 1, you get the triumphal entry and the rest of the book is his road to the cross in Jerusalem. And so some people have argued that the first third of the book is where you get the messianic secret, that it's not time to be revealed until he's ready to go to Jerusalem. I think there's a lot of merit to this. However, I would say, although the messianic secret passages are more common in the beginning of the gospel, you do get Jesus Mm -hmm. saying after the transfiguration in chapter nine, verse nine, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So there's a kind of a blanket uh, prohibition here that carries through the rest of the gospel that they're not supposed to tell what they've seen until the resurrection. So I don't think it's quite accurate to say it only takes place in the first part of Mark. I think those extend later, but they certainly happen a lot more in Mark and that in the beginning of Mark. And that's led people to say, well, it must be not time until he's ready to head to Jerusalem. And then he's okay mm-hmm. with people uh, talking about it. What's your take on that view? Yes, I do think uh, it's not my preferred view, but I do think that there is a sense of timing if, to leave the Gospel of Mark for a minute and go to John. You remember the turning of water into wine at Cana of Galilee and what Jesus says to his mother and what and leaving aside the gist of that. He said, you know, my hour is not yet come. It's not yet my time. And so Jesus clearly has a sense of timing in his ministry. And so I do think there is an element of that. It's not the most compelling element to me, but yes, I do think that Jesus had a sense of timing in his ministry. Yeah. The thing that makes that view a little bit difficult is uh, one, it, it seems a little bit forced that Jesus comes and does all these miraculous things, but can't avoid getting killed until the right time, unless he keeps everyone silent compounded with the fact that most of the people, the demons obey, especially in the early chapters, and don't tell anyone. But most of the people Mm -hmm. he heals go and tell everyone anyway. So on the timing thing, it almost seems a little bit like this was a ploy that Jesus had to make sure he doesn't get killed too early. People disobey him, and it still works out fine. I I don't know if that's exactly what uh, was happening there. The other thing is it's inconsistent. So if it's really just a pragmatic timing thing— In chapter five, for example, when he heals the demoniac, he tells him, go tell everyone what God has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. Now, he's not in Jerusalem. He's not a Jew. And so maybe Jesus isn't worried about him telling people at that point. But it seems like maybe there's a little more to the story here. He's telling that person to tell. He's telling other people not to tell, but they don't uh, do what he tells them. And things still end Mm -hmm. up working out right on the timeline. Yeah, I agree. I think that one's got a few little problems with it. If you, I do think there's a sense of timing. I think that's too much load to put this whole thing on that one reason. I think there are probably 
better explanations than that. So take number three would be that he did not want people to tell early in his ministry uh, or until after the resurrection, even because he did not want people to tell an incomplete story. He did not want to be known just as a miracle worker or just as an exorcist, that his mission really couldn't be fully seen or explained until the resurrection. And so mm-hmm. the points in favor of this view would be things like the silence that he commands, like you listed at the beginning, is usually around things like exorcisms and miracles. Uh, it's right. rare that you would see it in another context, like he teaches, although there's not a ton of teaching in Mark, but he teaches and says, don't tell right. anybody what I've taught you. Instead, it's uh, don't tell anyone if you're a demon that you've been cast out. Or if you've been healed, don't go and tell anyone. The The other thing that uh, I think is in favor of this view is if you look at Mark chapter 1, which is where you see the first few instances of the Messianic secret, Jesus gives us his purpose that goes along with this point. Um, he says, after rising in the morning, this is in chapter 1, verse 35, He departed and went to a desolate place where he prayed, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he says, let us go to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And it says, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So here we'd have a pretty good bifurcation. He wants people to see that his true mission is the preaching of the kingdom, which is announced early in his ministry, as opposed to, oh, he's just another one of these Jewish miracle workers or exorcists that's traveling around Judea. There's more to it than that. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think there's uh, certainly he wants them to understand it. For me, and this may get into your next point, I want to take that a little different direction. People had an expectation of what the Messiah was. And I think all probably our listeners know what that is, is that the Messiah was going to be a king like David. He was going to have an army. He was going to throw off the Romans. And so I think that was their expectation of Messiah. That label with that expectation is not helpful to Jesus because that's not what Messiah really ends up meaning. And they're not going to know that until after the resurrection. So I agree. Their misconception of the Messiah, I think, was something he wants them, not until the resurrection do they understand what the Messiah really is, that he's doing something way bigger than just throwing off the Roman yoke. But in fact, it's actually counterproductive at this time uh, for Jesus. Think about it. As those people that he tells don't say anything, say things, you find by the time he's feeding the, the feeding miracles, you've got 10,000 people there, right? Just estimating from the number of men, you you got 10,000 people there, and he's doing this miracle. Uh, you get the crowds at one point wanting to make him a king, meaning, hey, you can be our Messiah, get an army going, and let's go throw off the Romans. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to walk into uh, Jerusalem the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and there's 10,000 guys with AK-47s behind him. You know, mm-hmm. this is a, an a, an incorrect view of the Messiah that they had, and that was not at all helpful to Jesus. So I feel like it really was counterproductive, the, the what they thought the Messiah was. And so to me, that's part of the reason. He didn't want to be just a miracle worker, but he certainly didn't want to be leading a rebellion. 
both of those were misunderstandings of what the Messiah is. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I think he wants the whole story to be told. And his him being the Messiah really cannot be understood without his death and resurrection. Uh, there's a lot of other Jewish leaders. There have been military leaders. There have been miracle workers. But there's been nobody who comes and dies on behalf of the sins of his people and then rises from the dead. That And so he wants that whole story to be told. Um you know, I think it's similar to what in John chapter six, after he does the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000, I think there, the people come back to uh -huh. him and he says, you just came back because you want a free meal. You don't really get right. what's going on. And I think this is similar right. in that Jesus doesn't want to be that kind of savior for people alone. He he wants them to see the full story. Um, the fourth The fourth view is similar to this, but takes a little bit different approach, the fourth view would be that Jesus can only be revealed by God and therefore at the resurrection. And therefore, Jesus doesn't want people preaching their own message. He wants them preaching God's message in his ordained way after the resurrection. This one maybe takes a little bit more nuanced view of exactly why Jesus is waiting. I mean, like I said, it's in the same vein as number three. But if you look at chapter four of Mark, he gives an explanation of what he's doing that you see in most of the Gospels. The, the one in Mark is a little bit unique. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and this, we've talked about this briefly before on the podcast, but I think this is a, a lesson that uh, is easy to miss and it's really difficult to hear in, in some circumstances. The purpose of the parables consistently through Jesus' ministry is defined by what Jesus says next. They may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn back and be forgiven. So this is a, a modified quote from the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to read you the full quote from Isaiah chapter six, because this is actually the purpose of Isaiah's ministry as well. Uh, and it's a cryptic kind of ministry. It's a uh, things that are hidden may not be mm -hmm. revealed just yet kind of ministry. So when God calls Isaiah in the famous, you know, here I am, send me scene, he says, who, who shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Like I said, this is difficult to grasp because you're thinking, hold on a second. I thought the message of the gospel was that people would repent and be healed. Instead, now you have the purpose of the parables the purpose of the prophets, that though people see, they would not see, and though they hear, they would not hear. And the, the purpose of the parables in other gospels is that things that are revealed would be even more revealed, but things that are hidden would stay mm -hmm. hidden. And that there's a point in Jesus' teaching that reveals things to those who can see, but it hides things from those who cannot see. And so some people have taken the right. messianic secret in the same way. Jesus is going to deliver his message in his own way so that people see when they need to see and people don't when they need to 
not. Uh, David Garland has written a great book, uh, The Theology of, of Mark, Biblical Theology of Mark. This is his view, and he says the only ones who can understand the so-called messianic secret are those who faithfully follow Jesus as the Son of God who was crucified and raised. The interesting thing in the context of the book of Mark is the people that do see are not the ones you would think. So it's not like the the you know the disciples get to see and everybody else is blind. The disciples in in the Gospel of Mark right. are hopelessly blind throughout the whole thing until the resurrection. Instead, at the beginning of the gospel, you have the demons who see clearly. Of course, they don't see in a, in the sense right. of salvation, but they see clearly. And then at the end, you have the Roman centurion who, standing at the foot of the cross, says, surely this is the Son of God, and he sees clearly. So it's it's not a matter of, well, Jesus just wants his own people to know. It's something that only God right. can reveal to people. And uh, this is a way of Jesus preserving this living parable of his life until God is going to reveal it to people after the resurrection. So this is a little bit more nuanced view, maybe a sub view of number three, but I think another interesting view that people have, have come up with. Well, I, I like that a lot for this reason. I often said a lot of Jesus sayings are what I call time delay sayings. And you'll see this even in the gospels that the disciples didn't understand this at the time, but later they understood what he was talking about. I think the ultimate revelatory event is the resurrection. And the resurrection then brings a lot of what Jesus was teaching into focus. And so just to put a kind face on it, I don't disagree that there, you know, eyes are going to be closed and hearts are going to be hardened by God's power. But what I my point is, is that the timing wasn't right. In other words, you need to hear the whole story. I think you used an analogy once of once you've seen the first three episodes of a, a series on Netflix or Amazon, you probably shouldn't tell people about the series because you haven't seen the whole series yet. And so I think, Jesus, there is an element of until you see the resurrection, everything else is a little bit blurry. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way so to what's put the, it. What's the fourth view? Well, so we've got the first view is an apologetic for Jesus's rejection. The second is a pragmatic uh, move against being crucified at the at the wrong time, being too early. The third is not wanting to be known just as a miracle worker. And the fourth is that Jesus can only be revealed by God through the resurrection. So if those are the mm -hmm. four common takes, what's your take on this passage? Yeah, I... I probably lean, like I said, a little more maybe pragmatic in the sense that being labeled the Messiah or the Christ was not helpful to Jesus. In fact, and, and this is going to be conjecture, but go a little thought experiment with me. Suppose you were Satan and you got an inkling that this is the Christ and that he really is going to try to redeem these people that you want for yourself. How would you thwart Jesus' ministry? Well, you would have him killed as soon as you could, a la Herod and the babies. But the other thing I think I might do if I were as subtle as the devil is, is I might want to actually make him a little king, a rebel. Because, you know, many people had risen up, gotten five or 6,000, believe it or not, five or 6,000 armed fighting men and made a pretty good go at, a, at an insurrection. I would 
love to have the crowd make Jesus king, start an insurrection, the Romans roll in and kill him and his followers, just like they did everybody else. And now Jesus goes down in history as just another rebel trying to overthrow Rome. Now, that's conjecture. But I think if I were the devil, that would be a good way to keep him uh, from being the Messiah, so to speak, the true Messiah, and turn him into just another rebel that the Romans would crush. Mm-hmm. So back to my point, it seems to me for a lot of reasons that it didn't serve Jesus' purpose to be labeled the Messiah the way people understood it. And right. it would be much more effective when they understood it correctly. Definitely. Yeah, so that would be a little bit of what a combination you? of these views because uh, there is a pragmatic element, but I think the emphasis that you're putting on it is a little bit different than option number two. It'd be more in line with options three and four of mm -hmm. the true nature of him as the Messiah takes time to be revealed, and it needs to be revealed in God's own way. Um, I would right. I would agree for the most part with that view. I think it's interesting to me when Jesus decides to reveal himself in these gospel accounts. So uh, in Matthew, for example, at the triumphal entry, which is in Matthew 21, he mm -hmm. orchestrates a sign, almost a living parable, of riding into Jerusalem on a colt, which is a messianic proclamation. And that's why yes. Matthew cites Zechariah 9 uh, in that in that account, um, which I've been looking at because I'm preaching on that this Sunday. So I've, I've been thinking about, okay, <laughs> why would he orchestrate this sign that way? Well, it's, it is the end of the messianic secret, it is the declaration of his messiahship. And in Matthew, at least, it's a messiahship that is both king and suffering servant. He's a humble and meek king, not as you're, as you were just talking about, not the kind of king that's going to come in and throw off the Romans, but the kind of king mm -hmm. who's going to throw off death by dying, which is confronting a lot of the uh, right. expectations that the Jews had. In Mark, you don't get quite as clear uh, an announcement at the triumphal entry but you do get a very clear announcement of who Jesus is when he is before the council. So right. this, this would go along with the views that he had to wait for the right time to be before the right group of people who would not understand who he was so that they would put him to death. And this is before uh, the high priest and the chief priests in chapter 14. Uh, they're questioning Jesus. And in verse 61, it says, but he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And here Jesus actually does make a pronouncement. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do you need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So, that's when he chooses to make his profession right. as the Messiah. He ends up being killed over this. And then at the resurrection, uh, the whole story is complete. And the disciples then go and share the message with the other people. So I, I would say very similarly, Jesus is careful. You see this language in the Gospel of John really clearly. To do things exactly mm -hmm. the way that God had commanded him and God had planned things to work. Um, he's telling people not to say, I think because of the last reason, which is they don't understand because it hasn't been revealed. Revelation 
salvation uh, comes through the preaching of the cross and of the resurrection. It doesn't come through just the preaching mm-hmm. of Jesus as a healer or as an exorcist. It comes through the preaching of his life, death, and resurrection. That's really what the Christian faith is based on. And so I think he, understanding that only God can reveal that, uh, and only God can re- will reveal that when it has happened, he tells people to mm-hmm. not tell uh, because the story is not complete yet. And so that's why we see at right. the end of his life, he begins to tell people, but he begins to tell it in the context of his resurrection. So if you notice when he starts to make messianic claims in the gospel accounts, it's the son of man will suffer and die. He will be put to death and then he will rise on the third day. Um, or here, this is a this is an eschatological prophecy. Are you the Christ? Yes. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. That's after the ascension. And yes, coming on right. the clouds of heaven, which is the second coming. So he's saying, yes, I am. And you will know that by the things that happen after the resurrection and the ascension. Uh, whereas what he's telling people not to say is what he's doing on earth before he does all of that. So the focus then, I think, is he, to understand Jesus as the Messiah is to see him not just as the living, healing, uh, exercising miracle worker of the Jews, but as the risen and ascended savior of the whole world. And so like a TV series or a book or something, he's saying, hey, don't tell the whole story when you haven't seen it yet. And uh, then once it's happened, he gives his disciples in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, the commandment to go and spread the kingdom. Tell everybody. the, the The difficult thing for our view, and I don't know that we can really solve this, this is just a difficult question is, what do you do with things like the sending out of the 72? Uh, they're proclaiming the kingdom. They're getting ready. They're kind of an advanced group for Jesus teaching. Um, there's mm-hmm. difficulties with all of these posi- positions. And I would say that the teaching of the kingdom, which is more central in Matthew, for example, uh, is right. pointing to Jesus resurrection. That's what's being revealed at the triumphal entry. And so in some ways he's seeding those areas for the message that he really does want people to know. But this is a difficult, this is a difficult question and they'll done exactly what uh, is going on with this secret, but that's, that's my best take on it. Yeah. And I, I agree. There's certainly room for disagreement there, but the one thing I would say is absolutely sure in my mind is any theory that says Jesus was uncertain or Jesus wasn't sure who he was or Jesus, was sort of tiptoeing through his ministry, I don't find to be compelling. In fact, I think the evidence shows, and we would both agree, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Absolutely. Um, I think any reading of the Gospels will give you that. And uh, as, as for sorting out the Messianic secret, I think it has to come on the heels of Jesus knowing who he is, knowing what he's doing, knowing God's plan and his timing, and making sure that uh, people hear the message that can bring salvation, which is his life, death, and resurrection uh, that we see at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.